Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser, and welcome to Dry Eye Coach Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about tips for doctors just starting out in dry eye. So if you're looking for some new pearls about how to add dry eye in your practice, this may be the podcast for you. Today I'm joined by Assistant Professor at the University of Colorado Department of Ophthalmology, Dr. Rich Mangan. Welcome, Rich. Oh, thanks, Whitney. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. You bet. You bet. We're kind of excited to get to know you know, what you think are some of the greatest things that new practitioners or practitioners that are just trying to bring dry eye into their practice might want to add in uh, as they develop. So I'm going to jump in with some questions for you Okay. right off the bat. And what are the benefits to doctors and their patients for getting started or, or treating dry eye disease? You know, there's benefits on both sides. So give us a little bit right. of thought there. Right. You know, um, certainly the benefit for for me as a doctor in getting started uh, was just uh, to have a greater appreciation for the fact that ocular surface disease is in fact a real disease and not just a symptom. Uh, To be honest with you, years ago I used to hate dry eye. You know, I would go and see LASIK evals and CAT evals and I was really enjoying that, and then I'd pull out a chart and it'd say dry eye, and you know I'd just shrug in agony, thinking about it. But then I went to a, a speaker training many years ago. In fact, this was around 2002 when Restasis came out, and it really um, the panel did an excellent job of just really impressing upon the the attendees that you know the the quality of life scores with dry eye can really mimic, you know, even severe things like angina or a disabling hip fracture. So when I when I took that to heart, I decided that it was time to come back to my practice and truly treat it like a disease. And so I spent some time um, educating my, my key technicians, my uh, team leader, and we actually carved out dedicated time just to really focus and concentrate on these patients. And And what it did was after they got to hear, you know, my walking the walk and talking the talk, um, you know, my, my dry eye practice really became more efficient because they knew what I was going to say before I was going to say it. And, but they truly developed an appreciation for the fact that this is a disease. Yeah, you raise a good point, you know, about the kind of parallels that are, are between more serious, as they would be noted, diseases and dry disease. I think that's where a lot of the disconnect is. It's, it's not so much that the doctors don't believe it exists. I think that most eye care providers do. But it's the gravity of it to mm-hmm. the patient mm-hmm. sitting across from that I think is oftentimes what's missing. So I think yeah. you probably latched onto that well in advance of a lot of our colleagues, including myself. So, um, Well, I've been around yeah. longer than you, Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a little no. bit of a head start in that respect. Yeah, not, unfortunately, not by as much as one would think. So, <laughs> uh, so you feel like that this has a positive impact on new referrals as well, bringing new patients into your practice? You know, it really does. Keep in mind, when I first started my dry eye practice, I was in a co-management or referral center. And one of the the concerns we had when I brought this idea up was how were our referring doctors going to look at this? Wouldn't they look at it like I was competing with them? And in fact, the the response was the complete opposite. They loved the fact that they had a resource uh, in the area that really took this seriously. 
patients could tell when they came into my clinic this just wasn't being treated like a symptom. I was really focused on this disease for them. And it's funny because, you know, I only started off carving out a half day a week in my clinic, yet it took virtually no time for the word to get around the community that I was a dry eye expert. And I was no more of a dry eye expert than the guy down the road. It's just that I had a dedicated clinic, and all of a sudden I was an expert. But the reality is it it was. It was a powerful tool. And next thing you knew, I was getting referrals in the community. Uh, When I started, when I introduced uh, Autologous Serum, I was having people drive three and four hours for it. So right. I think just the fact that I committed to it, and, and that's if there was one thing I could hammer home to the audience is, you know, you, you can start with the basics and still make a difference in these patients' lives. You know, now certainly technology today has become more affordable. I mean, my goodness, if I had all the stuff we have available today back then, it would be a no-brainer for me because, you know, it, this stuff pays for itself both from a monetary standpoint, but just from a satisfaction standpoint to the doctor. Right. I mean, optometry is is pretty notorious for not referring, you know, interprofessionally to not referring Mm. to each other. And I think Mm. Dry does present a unique opportunity for that because, you know, just like you felt going down the hallway and pulling that chart out and saying, oh, here comes the dry patients and, oh, no, I I don't really feel a passion for this. You know, as much as maybe you and I love to have all our colleagues feel that same level of passion that we do, they're just not going to. And with that in mind, referring to to someone locally or regionally who does accept that challenge and does find that as a passion point is a a great opportunity, in my opinion, for the profession itself. Now, you kind of alluded to some some investments and things like that that you'd made along the way and opportunities that presented. So I guess my, my next question to you is, what are some of the key things that you recommend with getting started? And, and maybe what are some of those initial investments that you've made or that you would recommend a colleague make? Sure. Mine might be a little different from others, um, but uh, the ones that I think, you know, one of the biggest issues we face, Whitney, is compliance. And, um, and so I can tell you that what's really been a game changer is my biography as Mm -hmm. well as slit lamp photography or video. You know, when, when, you know, we, we have LipiFlow in our practice and we charge $1,500 per treatment, which I think is probably a little higher than the national average. But right. I, I don't have patients really balking too much at it when I show them their their uh, my biography and the scans of their lids, and I can show them that a third of their glands have atrophied or are in that process. So, you know, a picture goes a long way. And I can say the same thing with slit lamp video or photography. We've all had those patients that... Uh, right, both sides. We've had patients that have been relatively asymptomatic, yet they've got fluorid staining, significant ocular surface disease. And then we've had the opposite. We've got patients that are very symptomatic with very little signs. Right. Well, the the video or the photography, especially in that patient that's just got fluorid disease, their nerves are no longer functioning, we can show them a picture of that ocular surface. They're much more likely to buy into the, you know, the extensive treatment regimen I'm going to have to put for, you know, in front of them. So I think that's been just, um, you know, I think those are two big ones in my mind that that are helpful not only in just getting buy-in 
but essentially um, maintaining and growing your practice. Right. So it, it, buy-in is incredibly important for drive mm-hmm. patients. You know, it's funny. It goes on either side. We have to get the doctor to buy in initially, and once <laughs> right. they're, they're bought in, then we have to get the patients to buy in. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, you hate to use diagnostic tools as as a crutch, if you will, but gosh, it's really handicapping for me to think about not using a lot of those things that I've grown to rely on so much for patient education. Right. So I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. To, the picture is definitely worth more than a thousand words when it comes to dry, especially as you mentioned in that asymptomatic patient. When you say, look, look at what we see here, uh, and exactly. as our good friend Paul Carpecchio always says, this concerns me. Well, it really does concern me <laughs> when you That's see right. that. And it's equally, equally concerning that the patient doesn't have that same level of, of engagement sometimes. So th- what, um, what has your experience been with patient and physician accessibility, you know, in terms of reimbursement and cost issues? We all face that. It's very daunting. It makes your office, you know, lag sometimes in efficiency. And sometimes, frankly, that's just enough to get a doctor to turn the other way. Yeah. So what's your experience yeah. been? You know, overall, I think the biggest challenge, right, is with some of the pharmaceuticals that are newer, that are out, um, and, you know, sometimes the process of getting those uh, pre-approved uh, can be daunting. Um, I'd love to say I have a magical answer to that. I think it's just a matter of uh, staying the course. I know our practice has um, someone actually, that's their role, is to kind of help facilitate those things. Um, I'd love to see more of the pharmaceutical uh, industry come up with a little bit more of a cash price um, that's a little friendlier. I think we're starting to see that now. Um, You know, as far as things like treatments, though, as far as like my booming gland dysfunction, you know, again, I've just not had too much trouble converting those patients. Um, because, again, if I show them the scans of their lids, um, a lot of times they realize, you know, this, this is my site and this is, you know, one of my most precious gifts. And if they can't, can't swing it immediately, they certainly work toward that. Well, I think you raise a great point there because in my experience, um, a lot of times, and this is, goes with a lot of professions, but in particular, my experience has obviously been with optometry, is once a, a doctor presents a thermal treatment or uh, an intense pulse light treatment or something that's an out-of-pocket expense for the patient with dry eye disease, and that patient says no, um, I think that impacts the likelihood of them continuing to present you know, over time. I think all those no's sort of add up. And I, I think that, that I think that doctors tend to, to narrow down. They tend to shut down a little bit with their presentations and that can ultimately impact the number of procedures that they're doing. But you've really got a great perspective that that no isn't a never, it's just a not right. now. That's and right. we have to kind of consider that these conversions of patients to uh, out-of-pocket procedures is really not always an immediate conversion. You know, and we have to look at those conversion rates from an immediate, a short-term, and a long-term perspective and, and measure in that way. And I think that would really open up a lot of minds to, to continue to present. I think the failure of a lot of these uh, advanced treatments is that doctors just shut down. They feel like it's not working for me. I tried yeah. for a month or two, and it's not taking off the way I wanted it to. 
Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the other thing I've found is that doctors have felt pressured to try and get all the answers on one visit, uh, sometimes even with their VSP exam. And, you know, I, I try to impress upon them that, you know, this is a medical condition. This is something that should be billed through their medical insurance. And I tell patients up front, you know, I tell them dry eye management's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And uh, I'm willing to take this, this run with you. Uh, and it's always my goal to keep your cost as low as possible and to keep you in my office as little as possible, but ultimately the goal is to improve your quality of life and protect your vision. And I think when patients hear that, you know, they're, they're willing to take their time and, and work on this together. And at some point, you know, if we stack, get, get to a stagnant level or even backslide a little bit, that's when maybe the husband says, honey, you've tried everything else. Let's go ahead and pull the trigger and let's, let's do this advanced treatment for your eyes. Well, you, that's, that's a great perspective because it is oftentimes more of a, a family disease, if you will, you know, right. and we see this with other things too, but, you know, I feel like you get almost need to have that third level of buy-in from family members because, gosh, if you're sitting in the, the chair across from your spouse and you're hearing the words dry, that sure doesn't sound very serious. You That's know, right. and it's hard for sometimes those those family members to really have that same level of buy-in about their, their spouses or or their, you know, mother's uh, ailment. And mm. uh, you, you raise a great point. So as we go go forward, you know, kind of thinking about, what would you recommend for for doctors as some of the top treatments just to getting started? You know, there's there's practitioners out there that, you know, are, are practicing primary care optometry, doing a fantastic job. They want to start to pull things into their practice to really focus on dry disease. Where do you begin? Sure. Right. Well, I think the first thing I would kind of impress upon our colleagues is that while artificial tears certainly have a role in um, – in dry eye management and in, in helping short-term symptoms. If all we do is, is go to the cabinet and hand a sample to our patient, um, you know, we're not going to get very far. You know, studies have shown that the average patient tries three and a half different types of artificial tears before they even come in for their chief complaint of dry eye. So we have to be mindful that uh, we need to be a little bit more advanced in our, in our management. Uh, the second thing is, you know, if you're seeing any kind of staining on the ocular surface, um, you know, uh, that is definitely telling us that we have not just mild ocular surface disease. We need to start thinking about some kind of anti-inflammatory to use. So that would be an, uh, one thing. And then I think nutrition is also very important. You know, I live in Boulder, Colorado, and this is like the health and wellness uh, mecca of the United States. And so everybody is very uh, tuned into that here, and, uh, and rightfully so. And um, I think one product that, that we've embraced here um, is called Hydro Eye, which is um, not just an omega-3, but uh, really the, the component to that, that um, supplement, which is really, I think, a difference maker, is the GLA in it. That combined with omega-3 has been uh, really studied extensively. I think there's over at least seven good uh, clinical trials that have looked at the positive effects that it has, not just on general body inflammation, but specifically for the eye. 
And um, one of the things that they studied in the in the Hydroa trial, which was one reason we've decided to make it our main omega here, is the fact that it really also stabilizes the ocular surface. So we're in a practice where we do a fair amount of LASIK and cataract surgery. And one of my roles in my dry eye practice is surface optimization prior to surgery. And so uh, it's one of the key things we really look to incorporate as well. So I say those are the first few that comes to mind. Is there something I'm I'm missing, Whitney? <laughs> no, I think I think that I think that sounds like a great spot. Artificial tears, really refining your recommendations for artificial mm-hmm. tears, not mm-hmm. just like you said, here's one out of the cabinet. In mm-hmm. terms of nutritional recommendations, um, I make that same recommendation, and I find that beginning with making a presentation to a patient about an out-of-pocket expense, nutritional uh, supplementation is a great place to start mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. perhaps you're not at a point where you're recommending Lipiflow, Ilux, Tear Care, you know, Intense Pulse Light, whatever the, the you know, option may be, but you need to present something. You need to present it with, you know, like you said, some, some significant information behind it why Mm -hmm. I'm making this specific recommendation for you, not just any nutritional supplement, but in your case, you're using HydroEye, why that's a value to you as a doctor and why it should be a value to the patient. And that really refines their presentation skills. And I think it's a stepping stone to doing more and more in dry eye disease. So I I couldn't agree with you more. The other thing perhaps maybe I would add in, and, and you might have touched on this, is a little bit more about lid hygiene. Um, it's often right. overlooked, and it's an easy product to have in your office that is not going to go, it's, it's not going to expire on the shelf. You're going to be moving that product because it's so ubiquitous. Uh, and I think gives a great opportunity, again, to refine that for those presentation skills. Because I think what doctors will find is as they're presenting things like nutritional supplements and lid hygiene, you're going to step on yourself a million times before you figure out exactly how to say it. And once you got it, you got it. We've all done right. that with everything else we do in practice. Uh, so right. I think that's a great stepping stone. Yeah, and science-based health just makes it so easy to, um, but for both the, the doctor's office and the patient, and right. a dollar a day, you know, a money-back guarantee, and uh, I just love the fact that I can hand a patient a copy of the study that specifically uh, was for dry eye, and I, I right. think they really, really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, oftentimes nutritional supplements don't have the the research behind it the way this Mm -hmm. one does, which I think Mm -hmm. is is definitely uh, supportive. But that, funny enough, that money-back guarantee, I've told many patients about it over the years uh, because I've probably been prescribing HydroEye for five years or so. I think out of that five years, I've had maybe, maybe two to three people ever, you know, try to to get that money-back guarantee. It's so infrequently used, but somehow it's validating to the patients that clearly the company is standing behind it. And don't you find Uh, it's just so so well-tolerated, you know, compared to just doing uh, omega-3 only? I find that patients just stick with it because it's, it's, you know, there aren't really any side effects with it. Well, and a lot of my patients just like wellness. You know, mm-hmm. I think as doctors, we are trained to treat sickness, particularly in, in eye care. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't necessarily have a lot of wellness uh, objectives with our patients always. Uh, and I think that this is something that the patients are pretty keenly interested in in terms of wellness. So the the objection that they have uh, is not usually to something that's nutritional. A lot of times I have to do a little bit more coaxing when it comes to pharmaceutical agents than it does to nutritional supplements. That's right, yeah. 
So my last question for you is, how has having a dry practice benefited your practice and patients? What are are the benefits you're seeing coming back to you? Yeah. Um, Well, it's certainly, um, it's kind of amazing at how quickly the practice grew. So certainly any doctor that is, you know, especially maybe a new physician to a group practice that's looking to build build their patient base. Um, trust me, it would take no time, you know, for that, that clinic to grow. And then, you know, as you start off, you're going to find that it's maybe a little inefficient at first, but again, you'll, you'll learn quickly how to make it efficient. So it makes sense uh, from a financial perspective, too. Uh, I think the big thing for me is just the the personal satisfaction of of really helping people. When you get that first hug from a Sjogren's (laughs) Syndrome patient that couldn't leave the house, I mean, the the wind and everything, they were just so miserable. Uh, That alone is validating. And um, so, um, you know, I think think it's a win-win for everybody. And let's not forget that, you know, it is uh, while while men certainly uh, are are in my dry eye clinic, it's still predominantly female. And when you think about it, you know who are the primary caregivers of the household? It's usually the mom, right? So okay. if you make a mom happy or you make grandma happy, the next thing you know, you may be bringing an entire family into your practice. So um, right. anyway, yeah. Well, and the reason I laughed when you said that about about the hug is it was the first thing that jumped in my mind is, you know, my dry patients are huggers. You uh-huh. know, they, uh-huh. it's, it's such a and, – and somebody that wants to have that emotional connection with you, it mm-hmm. really means you are making a big impact in their lives. It's, mm-hmm. it's above and beyond a lot of the things that we have the privilege of doing that – it's kind of like that first pair of contacts in a high myope or, or whatever, but this – really reaps benefits uh, to you emotionally as a physician that a lot of other disease processes don't. So I I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Rich, I really appreciate your time today. It's been really valuable. Um, I think we both agree. We encourage our colleagues to jump in with both feet in terms of dry disease. You've really given us some food for thought and some real actionable things that can be taken into practice right away. So I certainly appreciate your time today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Whitney. Thank you so much. You bet. And thank you for joining us for Dry Eye Coach Podcast. We'll have more. We'll be adding to iTunes soon. So keep listening.